Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would work through your word now and enable us to endure by faith. Lord, cause us to believe so firmly in what you have promised, in the greatness of the reward that we too might be those who rejoice in the plundering of our possessions. Make us those, Lord, who have compassion on our brothers and sisters in the faith who are being persecuted or even imprisoned. And Lord, make us those who will gladly bear the reproach of Christ. Lord, we ask that you do this for the glory of the name of Jesus and for the good of our souls. Amen. I would invite you to open to Hebrews chapter 10 this morning, and we will be looking at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 39. Hebrews 10, 32 through 39. As you turn there, I want to invite you to imagine a scenario where the whole society agrees that going to church would be the wrong thing to do. We've lived through a scenario like this recently. A scenario where even some Christians were arguing that going to church was not showing love to neighbor. And along with this, imagine a scenario where there's an alternative standard of righteousness that the whole society agrees on replete with righteous deeds and righteous statements, according to them, that are obviously unjust, that show partiality, that are unfair, but that everyone says are right. Well, this is not hard to imagine because we've lived through a recent situation where the COVID shut down and the, the wave of critical race theory that washed over our society had everyone demanding certain behaviors and certain, certain really, com confessions of faith be made in our society. And we've lived through this, and the audience of Hebrews was living through something like this. The audience of Hebrews was in a society where they were told that Christianity was unrighteous, Christianity was bad for society. And if they persisted in making their Christian confession and in gathering with other Christians for worship, the society would unleash its wrath upon them. We have lived through this, and we will likely face this kind of thing again. Uh, this past week, my family and I watched a movie called A Man Call Called Otto. It's a great movie, except for this one disturbing part. And that is that in the movie, it is righteous for this character, the main character, Tom Hanks, to accept this transgender person. And it is clearly communicated that for him to reject this person on the basis of the fact that it's a girl acting like a boy, for him to object to that would be unrighteous and wicked in the extreme. And so, of course, he does the right thing. He does the right thing, and the message, in part, is you should too. You should accept whatever people say about themselves. Well, we are living in a time when 
the, 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 the good confession is going to be demanded of us, the righteous uh, confession that they are what they say they are is going to be demanded of us, and we're going to be faced with a choice increasingly in our society to obey God rather than man. That's, that's increasingly where we are. Uh, so the author of Hebrews in this passage, what he's doing for his audience is he's saying, I know that you're facing more suffering. You need to think back on what you've suffered and think about how you got through that, and then you need to bring that to bear on the suffering that you're now enduring and that you're going to face. And, and it's, I think it's obvious in this passage that this author thinks that Christians are going to suffer now and in the future. Now, I want to insert a word here about our, uh, many of our uh, contemporary uh, uh, believers in our society, some of whom are in embracing movements known as postmillennialism and, and theonomy. Uh, the, tied up in this whole thing for them is this idea that the suffering was going to culminate in AD 70. And that after AD 70, there was going to be this fundamental change so that now it's over. The suffering is past. It's been accomplished, and now we can take over. That's, that's part of their, uh, their whole system, at least for some of them. And, and I'm going to argue in this passage, and for the rest of the New Testament, that there is no indication that AD 70 is some sort of decisive turning point, but rather that Christians should expect the world, the seed of the serpent, to continue to be at enmity with us until Christ returns. So I think the, our post-mill theonomous friends are wrong on this point. Um, I, I think that when Jesus says, this generation shall not pass away until all these things are accomplished, he's really talking about the seed of the serpent. The seed of the serpent are not going to pass away. They're going to continue to persecute and oppose Christianity until all these things are accomplished. So I would invite you as we look at this passage to ask yourself, does this author think suffering is going to end for Christians, or does he think that suffering is going to continue for Christians and, and affliction? I think the answer is going to be obvious. As we work our way through, in verses 32 through 34, the author is going to tell the audience how they endured in the past. He's going to remind them and tell them to remember what they endured in the past and how they did it. And then in verses 35 and 36, he's going to tell them how to endure in the present and the future. And then in verses 37 through 39, he's going to tell them that Christ is coming. And, and Christ's coming will be the moment of their relief. And this is where that AD 70 thing comes in because many of these partial preterist, post-millennial theonomists, they locate the coming of Christ in AD 70. And, and I think that is just totally wrong-headed and, and uh, misguided. And I think that Christ is coming in the future and therefore that the suffering is going to continue. So let's look together at how these Christians, th this audience that the author of Hebrews writes to, how they endured in the past in verses 32 through 34. The author writes, But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Now, as we think about what he's saying to this audience, we really need to bring in the previous two sections to, to understand the flow of thought here. So you remember that in chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, he's urging them to draw near to Christ, verse 22, and to hold fast the confession, verse, 30, verse 23, 
hold fast the confession of our hope. And then in verse 24, he says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. Okay, so he's urging them to draw near to Christ, hold fast the confession of Christianity, and then uh, stir up one another and not stop coming to church. And then in verses 26 through 31, which we looked at last time, he talks about how if we go on sinning de deliberately there in verse 26, and, and I made the case that what he's talking about is if we go on not coming to church, not identifying with other Christians in order to avoid persecution because the world is putting pressure on Christians. He's saying if we give up the faith, essentially, then there, there's no sacrifice that remains for us and so forth. And so instead of stopping being a Christian, verses 20, 26 through 31, what he's saying to them now is, remember how you endured this kind of thing in the past, verse 32. Recall the former days. So what he's telling them is, remember what you've been through. Remember how you endured already some of this persecution and opposition from the world. And, and this is one of the reasons that I started by reflecting on 2020. I think it's, it's good for us to reflect on all that the Lord has brought us through in our lives. It's good for us to remember his faithfulness to us through the course of our lives, to remember times when we called on him and he delivered us, times when we were tempted to maybe depart from the faith and we refused to give in to that temptation and we experienced the, the joy and the fellowship of walking through difficulty with other believers. We should remember these things and in part, the author is saying, that's what will keep you going now as you continue to suffer. So he says there in verse 32, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, uh, notice, notice that phrase, he's clearly talking about them becoming Christians. He's, he's speaking as though the, the veil has been removed and their eyes have been opened and their minds have been activated and, and it's as though a dead heart of stone has been taken out and a living heart of flesh has been, been put in and they've been made alive in Christ. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, that's what it means to become a Christian. When, when you become a Christian, God, what God does for you is he... He awakens your sensibilities. He enables you to see Christ as he is. And anyone who has seen Christ as he is knows that he is trustworthy, knows that he's the best thing that they've ever experienced, and they will never go away from him. That's just the way it works. This is what we want for you. We want you to experience the glory of the Lord Jesus. So recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Now, in verse 33, he's going to detail the, what that hard struggle with sufferings looked like. He says in verse 33, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So their world didn't work like our world. Their world didn't have news cameras and uh, social media and, and the internet and all of this kind of thing, but their world had things like public re reproach and affliction. In other words, they, they, they might not have had a, 
you know, a Twitter mob attack you or uh, a Facebook uh, post that, that maybe tells everyone where you live and what your name is or something like this, but they had their ways of publicly exposing who these people that all the society should reject according to the quote-unquote righteous world. Of course, the righteous world has set itself against God. It's at enmity with God. And so the author is saying to them, remember how this was done to you. They outed you as Christians. They, they put you out in public, put you on display for everyone to mock. And so sometimes that was your experience. Other times, as that was happening to other Christians, you went over and stood with them. You were publicly identified with those so treated. No one, no one likes that experience. No one wants to be shamed by the world. But the Lord Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father who is in heaven. And then the author continues in verse 34, for you had compassion on those in prison. Now, I think that this is not just prisoners in general. I think it's great to be compassionate on prisoners in general, but I think what's particularly in view here is believers who have been condemned, sentenced, and incarcerated for being Christians. I think these are people who are imprisoned for the faith. People like the Apostle Paul, who was taken into Roman custody, and then they would not let the man go. Uh, there's, a, there's a great book on Paul in Roman custody. And the author talks about that justice system, the Greco-Roman justice system. And he talks about how so often people could be imprisoned just like Paul was at the whim of the governor. And, and we read in the book of Acts how the person incarcerating Paul is keeping him in prison because he wants to placate the Jews. He doesn't think Paul has done anything wrong. He doesn't think Paul deserves to be incarcerated, but he's trying to keep those Jews quiet, and so he keeps Paul in prison. And then finally, Paul has to appeal to Rome, and they ship him off to Rome. In that kind of justice system, where you don't know why people are put in jail, no one wants to associate with those who are in jail. Even in our justice system, where, where we understand, for the most part, uh, people pursue just cause, they, they have to prove a case for someone to be imprisoned. Even in our justice system, there's a kind of reluctance to be identified with people who are incarcerated, and we instinctively feel that those who are incarcerated must have done something wrong. They must be in the wrong. Well, in that justice system, not only do you have that sort of instinct, well, he's in chains, he must have done something wrong, you also have this sense of, well, if he didn't do anything wrong, and they imprisoned him, what's going to happen to me if I identify with him? And, and the author of that book, Paul in Roman Custody, Brian Rapsky, he, he, he really helps you feel the, the remarkable boldness of the love of those Christians who keep coming out to greet the Apostle Paul as he, as he makes his way from the land of promise over to the city of Rome. You know, on the, on the journey, repeatedly you read about how Christians came and, and attended to his needs and, they, and they, they're identifying with him. They're also risking, by being identified with him, the government deciding, oh, we need to put you in jail too. So, so this having compassion on those in prison is a very risky thing. It's a bold move. It says, essentially... I don't care what the world is going to do to me. 
And I don't care what the world has said about the, the Apostle Paul or someone like him. I know that he's righteous. I know that he's with the Lord. And I know that what I need to do is serve him and love him, whatever it may cost me. And for these believers, it costs them. Look at what the verse goes on to say. You had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. So it, it seems that because they ministered to believers who had been incarcerated, there was either a fine or a backlash, maybe a riotous mob. We're not told what happened. But there's a connection between them having compassion on the prisoners and their property being plundered. How would you respond if by coming to church or by identifying with fellow believers, perhaps, perhaps siding with someone in one of these lawsuits that are, that are all the time happening around us, having to do with, with believers wanting to be able to say, uh, I don't believe in the message that you're wanting me to communicate, so I don't want to use my artistic talents to create a celebration of the message that you're wanting to communicate. And, and because you side with that Christian in one way or another, the government seizes your bank accounts. Maybe because they seize your bank accounts, they impound your car. Maybe you lose your house. I mean, we don't know what possessions these believers had plundered, but look at, what, look at how this worked for them. Look at how they were able to do this there in verse 34. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Now, let me just pause and note the, this sort of ironic uh, wordplay here. They, these believers accepted plundering. They, they received things being taken from them. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So the calculation goes like this. If I identify with these believers, if I keep the faith, if I confess the name of Christ before men, I'm going to inherit the new heavens and new earth. My, my better possession will be life in the resurrection, enjoying the glory of God in an eternal world of joy. That's the calculation. So to get that, I've got to lose this? Well, have it then. That's the way they're responding. They're joyfully receiving the plundering of their possession because they know that they have a better possession and an abiding one. The calculation goes, I'm going to die and all this stuff's going to rot. It's going to rust. Moths are going to destroy it. Thieves are going to break in and steal. I can't keep it anyway. So you can have it so that I can have the reward, the, the better possession, the abiding one. I'm, I'm listening right now to a novel called um, A Soldier in the Great War. It's, a, it's, a, it's about this man who lived through, uh, lived through and fought in World War I. And at one point, they condemn that man and the members of his unit to die. They, they, they put them before the firing squad. And at that moment, every, everything else, all the trivial things, as these guys face the firing squad, all the trivial things fall away. 
And, and one of these men has young children. And, and the only reason he wants to live at that moment is for the sake of his children. Uh, the, the main character, he, he comes to appreciate the glory and the beauty of life in this world. He, he wants to go on seeing things like trees. He wants to, to continue to enjoy camaraderie with other human beings. That's what matters. He's not concerned about the loss of his property. The, you can have the property. Life is what's living for. And, and these Christians understand that. And so they, they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property because they knew that they themselves had a better possession and an abiding one. What's happening for them is that the hope of what God has promised to do in the restoration of all things, that hope is so big that the loss of their stuff is small. That's where we want to live. We want to live in such a way that the hope for what God has promised is so large in our thinking that all of our stuff seems small by comparison. And the degree to which we've, we've really internalized that reality will be reflected in the degree of joy with which we respond to the loss, the stripping away of all this other stuff. Maybe, maybe it won't be stripped away. Maybe it will. We, we want to be those who are prepared to joyfully accept the plundering of our property for the name of Christ. So this is how they've endured in the past. This is what they've already done. This is how they responded in the past. And now the author is going to urge them to continue to endure. So in verse 35, he says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. Now their confidence, he, he, he uses this particular word that's translated confidence. Uh, I think some translations may render it boldness. The author uses this word four times in the letter to the Hebrews. And the, 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 the other three are prior to this. And so in order to understand what he's talking about when he says in verse 35, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, we should look at the earlier three instances of this word to know what kind of confidence he has in view. The first one is in chapter 3, verse 6. And back in Hebrews 3, 6, the author says, he's, he's speaking of, he's making this comparison between the Lord Jesus and Moses. And he talks about how uh, Moses has built this temple and Christ is building his church, which is another opportunity for me to insert a word here against the post-millennial theonomists, because what they think Jesus is building is governments. Jesus is not building governments. He's building a church. Uh, this is really what sets us across from a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of uh, other denominations. Baptists believe that it's believers who belong in the church, not just uh, members of society at large who might have been immersed in water as babies. It's only believers who are in covenant with God. And what Jesus is doing right now in the world is not building a world government or something like this, a theonomy. Rather, what he's doing is building a church. And look at Hebrews 3.6. The author says at the, near the end of the verse, And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence. We are his house. We are his church. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
1 Corinthians 3.16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you, Paul writes to the Corinthian believers. We are his house if we hold fast our confidence. So what is this confidence about? I think it's about confidence in Christ and Christ's ability to save us. And that's what makes us his house. So when the author says, in 1035, therefore, do not throw away your confidence. I think he's saying, don't walk away from the faith. Don't walk away from, don't decide that you don't have confidence in the Lord Jesus anymore. And then the next instance is in chapter 4, verse 16. Hebrews 4, 16, the author writes, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Now, as we've, as we've made our way through the, the book of Hebrews, I've, I've made the case that the author is, is, is paralleling what the Lord Jesus has accomplished with what the high priest of Israel did on the Day of Atonement. And the high priest of Israel on the Day of Atonement entered into the heaven, the, not the heaven, the earthly Holy of Holies, and there he made cleansing and made atonement for the people and the tabernacle. And the author has, has been arguing, arguing in Hebrews that Jesus fulfills this ministry by entering not into the earthly holy of holies, but into the heavenly holy of holies. And he does such a cleansing that he makes it so that God's, all God's people, all believers, can draw near to the throne of grace in the heavenly holy of holies where Christ is now seated at the right hand of God. So this is a confidence to come before God, him, God the Father himself by means of what Christ has done for us. And... and in relationship to him as our great high priest. So Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So again, I think don't throw away your confidence means don't stop being a Christian. Don't stop drawing near to God through Christ. And then the third instance is in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, where the author says, therefore, brothers, this is going in the same direction, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. And, and then he urges the audience to draw near, hold fast, and then consider how to stir others up, not neglecting to meet together, uh, but rather uh, encouraging one another when you meet together. So on this basis, I would say that this confidence includes you keep coming to church because you're confident of the reward no matter what society does to you. No matter what persecution or affliction being publicly exposed as a Christian does to you, no matter what the world tries to do to you in response to you saying, look, God made the world and God made this world a certain way and I'm not going to deny the fact that God made male and female. And I'm not going to deny the fact that God made marriage such that it only consists of one man and one woman in a covenant of marriage for life. I'm not going to deny these things. In order to gain the approval of the world, what's that going to do for me? In order to keep a temporary job, that's not going to keep my soul out of hell. And so the author is saying, don't throw away your confidence don't throw away your confidence, verse 35, which has a great reward. He's right back to that better possession and an abiding one. 
So I think at the end of verse 34, the better possession and the abiding one is the reward that he's talking about at the end of verse, verse 35. And in order to keep the reward, you have to keep the confidence. You can't throw away your confidence in Christ and expect to go to heaven. You can't stop being a Christian and expect to be favorably received by the Father when you stand before him, as the author is about to describe. So how to endure in the present and the future? First, don't throw away your confidence in Christ. And then he continues, verse 36, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You have need of endurance. Look back at chapter 10, verse 32, where we started. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured the author is saying, look, the way that you endured the last time this persecution and affliction came upon you is what you need to keep doing. That joyful reception of the plundering of your property because you knew that you had a better possession and abiding one, you need to stay in that. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, uh, what's he talking about here? I think he's talking about faithfully proclaiming the gospel, and faithfully confessing Christ before men. I think that's what he's talking about. Living out the commands of the New Testament. And in support of, of that kind of thing, be, being faithful and obedient to the Lord, in support of that, that kind of reading of so that when you have done the will of God, let me just direct your attention to some of the things that he's going to call attention to in Hebrews 11. So in Hebrews 11, he's going to talk about the way that God is going to make demands on Abraham. Like, go to the place that I'm telling you to go. And Abraham goes. Like, uh, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and offer him up. And Abraham goes and does it. And then he's going to talk about Moses and the way that Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing instead to be identified with the people of God. And he, and he chooses... He, he sees the, the, the wealth of Christ as of greater worth than all the wealth of Egypt and the fleeting pleasures of sin. So I think that the author is urging this discipleship, basic Christian discipleship of obedient responses to the Lord and faithful confession of the truth. That's what he's urging. And he's saying you have need of endurance in those things, that's the will of God for you. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Now, what, is, what, is, what has been promised? Well, look back at verse 34. A better possession and an abiding one. The word possession has connotations in, in, in Bible speak, in Bible language. It has connotations of the possession, the inheritance of the land that, that the people of Israel were going to have when they enter into the land of promise. And that is going to be fulfilled in the new heavens and new earth, in the new and better, the fulfillment of the land of promise. So the, the better possession is the experience of God's glory in the new heavens and new earth. And then, the, which has a great reward in verse 35. Have you... Have you contemplated the, the bargain that you're making as a Christian? You, you're saying, okay, Lord, I, I will take you as my God, which is the truth, 
He really is your God. I will confess you as my creator, which is what is indeed the case. And I will place my full hope in Christ as my Savior. And he's the only available Savior. And in response, he is giving us everlasting life. He, he will resurrect our bodies, heal them of all of their flaws, and fully equip us to enjoy the fullness of God's glory forever. And, and you know, I think sometimes we're, we're a little bit daunted by the, the prospect of eternity. We think something like, well, won't I get bored? Look at the world. Do you think that God is boring? Do you think that God is going to come up with no exciting things for you to do forever? I mean, it's astonishing what's being promised in reward for what's being demanded. I mean, we're really being asked to simply be what we were created to be and confess the truth. And, and in return, we get everything. It's, it's astonishing. Do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And now we come, thirdly, to the return of Christ, verse 37. For, the author says at the beginning of verse 37. Now, um, this phrase, yet a little while, may look somewhat insignificant, but what the author has done is he's picked up a, a, a really unique phrase from Isaiah 26, verse 20, which was read earlier in the service. And, and you, you remember from our reading of that passage that it almost sounds like a new Passover. The, the, Isaiah urges the people of Israel to enter into their homes and hide because the Lord is coming out to judge. And, and it's almost like the destroyer coming through Egypt once again. And so I think the author wants to evoke that passage when he talks about the return of the Lord Jesus. He wants to say, essentially, the second coming is going to be the fulfillment of this Exodus and Passover situation. So that phrase, yet a little while, picks up Isaiah 26, that passage we read earlier. And it was clear there that God himself is coming in judgment. And then he goes on, and now he's quoting the Greek translation of Habakkuk 2. So we had Habakkuk 2 as our call to worship this morning. And you don't see in the, the English translation of the Hebrew, the coming one will come and will not delay. But when they rendered the Hebrew into Greek, that's the way it reads. And, and the author of Hebrews is now quoting the Greek translation. And he's clearly talking about the second coming of the Lord Jesus. So yet a little while, the Lord coming in judgment, Isaiah 26. The coming one will come and will not delay. This is clearly a reference to the return of Christ. And he says in verse 38, But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Okay, and let's think about what shrinking back looks like. Shrinking back, I think, in this context, for these, for the... The, the, the initial audience of this letter would, would look like somebody recognizing, oh, if I'm identified with those Christians, they, could, they might plunder my possessions. They might even incarcerate me like some Christians have been put in prison. And then that person shrinks back from identifying as a Christian in public. We translate this into our day today. You recognize if, if, if I 
object to the LGBTQ plus revolution, I could get fired. I could get sued. The, the, the society at large could regard me as a bigot. Look at what this text says. Verse 38. This is the Lord speaking. The Lord says, my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So the choice is really stark here. You can either have the pleasure of the world and lose God's pleasure in you, or you can have the approval of the living God who is in possession to reward and punish forever. In position to reward and punish forever. My righteous one shall live by faith. I, I think in all these scenarios, that means... Uh, I know this could cost me, but I trust the Lord. They may take my car. I trust the Lord. They may fire me from my job. I trust the Lord to meet my needs. The whole society may reject me as a bigot. I trust the Lord. And I'm going to live by faith. And I'm, and I'm going I'm to make the wager that what he has to reward me with is better than everything that I stand to lose and everything the world can throw against me. They may put me in jail. I'll trust the Lord to take care of my wife and kids. I'll trust the Lord. My righteous one, the Lord says, shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And then the author says in verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. Now, I think he's talking about uh, those people who pro he probably knows some of them who have decided it's not worth it. I'm not going to be a Christian. I don't want to endure the persecution of the world. I don't want the, the society at large to view me as whatever they want to call me. I mean, in the early church, uh, the Christians were, were called cannibals because they partook of the Lord's Supper. It was a slanderous lie. You know, they're not eating the body and blood literally of Jesus. We know what's going on. They were, they were uh, slandered as being incestuous because even husbands and wives would refer to one another as brother, brother and sister in Christ. Slanderous lie. They were called atheists because they rejected the gods of the Greco-Roman pantheon. Slanderous lies. And, and some of these people, some of these people identifying as Christians in the early church, probably left the faith. And the author is saying, you leave the faith, you shrink back, you're destroyed. You're destroyed because you're not going to obey. You're not going to come under the blood of Christ. You're not going to hide yourself when the destroyer passes over. You're going to be destroyed. We are not of those, verse 39, who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve our souls. That's what it means to have faith. It means to be saved. It means to live. So... The author has uh, detailed how these people endured in the past, how they are to endure in the present and in the future, and then he closes in verse 37 through 39, assuring them Christ will come. And when he comes, he's going to reward and judge. He's going to judge those afflicting his people. He's going to reward those faithful to him. So I want to close this morning by asserting that those who are righteous by faith do not shrink back from drawing near to Christ. Okay, We have confidence to enter the holy places. We don't shrink back. 
we confidently identify with the people of God. We don't, we don't need, we don't need uh, Christians who talk like other Christians are trash. We've had enough of that. Let's be Christians who identify with other Christians. We identify with the people of God. Those who are righteous by faith do not shrink back from drawing near to Christ, confidently identify with his church, and boldly proclaim the gospel that frees us from prizing worldly, temporary comfort and relief over eternal bliss. And, and to try to bring this home, I want to do a cost-benefit analysis. So I want to... I want to uh, cost-benefit analysis of leaving the faith. Or maybe if you're not a believer here this morning, cost-benefit analysis of remaining un in unbelief as opposed to uh, identifying with Christians, believing in the Lord Jesus, and accepting the disapproval of the world that will probably call you a bigot. So let's think about the benefits of either remaining an unbeliever or leaving the faith altogether. What do you gain? And here, again, I'm informed by Hebrews 11 and the way that the author talks about Abraham and, and Moses in particular. You gain the world's approval, right? All society, I mean, you, you might even become a best-selling author. All society will say that you're righteous. The world's approval, that's great. You also gain the opportunity to indulge your flesh, right? Moses he, he forsook the fleeting pleasures of sin. Well, you abandon the faith. You don't have to bother with any more of these, these restrictions on your behavior. You can indulge your flesh. And then thirdly, you gain freedom from God's demands. If God says, I want you to go do this, you can... I'm free from that demand. I don't have to bother with that ever. Okay, so those are the benefits. Those are the benefits. Let's think about the costs. What do you lose if you abandon the faith? Well, you gain, you gain the world's approval, but you lose what I'm going to refer to as the brotherhood. You, you lose fellowship with believers. And I, I would just invite you to ask yourself, who are the people that I think I can really trust? Who are the people that I can expect to look me in the eye and tell me the truth? Their yes is yes, their no is no. And then in addition to losing fellowship of the people that you can really count on because they know they're sinners and they, they, they're following Christ and they're trying to be faithful to the Lord. I, I want to read this passage from Jaber Crow's book. Uh, uh, sorry, Wendell Berry's book, Jaber Crow. Wendell Berry is kind of a lefty and Jaber Crow is kind of a kooky character. But this is a beautiful passage about, about fellowship in church and, and about the joy of singing in church together. He says, um, what I liked best was the singing. Not all of the hymns could move me. I never liked Onward Christian Soldiers or the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Jesus' military career has never compelled my belief. I liked the sound of the people singing together, whatever they sang. But some of the hymns reached into me all the way to the bone. Come thou fount of every blessing. Rock of ages, amazing grace, O oh God, our help in ages past. I loved the different voices all singing one song, the various tones and qualities, the passing lifts of feeling, rising up and going out forever. 
Old man prophet, who was a different man on Sunday, used to draw the notes at the ends of verses and refrains so he could listen to himself. And in fact, it sounded pretty. And when the congregation would be singing, we shall see the king someday, someday, Sam May, who often protracted Saturday night a little too far into Sunday morning, would sing, I shall see the, see the king someday, Sam May. I thought that some of the hymns bestoke the true religion of the place. The people didn't really want to be... Uh, I'm going to skip this part because he's got a hang-up about this. But anyway, uh, I'm going to skip down. Um, he says, I loved to hear them sing the unclouded day and sweet by and by. We shall sing on that beautiful shore the melodious song of the blessed. And in times of sorrow, when they sang abide with me, I could not raise my head. You leave the faith... You leave the joy of walking with a body of believers and learning each other's peculiarities and foibles. You leave, that's your first cost. Your second, you leave the faith, and this corresponds to, you know, you get to indulge your flesh. Yeah, you get to indulge your flesh, but you lose the delight that is only possible when gratification is delayed. There, there are delights in life there are joys and experiences of pleasure that are only available to those who can delay their gratification. And if you don't have the ability to delay your gratification, you will never have these particular delights. So if you plunge yourself headlong into the indulgence of your flesh, I think you'll actually find that the return diminishes. The joy, the satisfaction diminishes. But if you give yourself to obedience to the Lord, and, and this restraint of your sinful flesh, I think you'll find the delights, the joys, the pleasures get sharper, brighter, more poignant, more fulfilling. So you lose the church, you lose real joy, and then worst, and this, this goes with freedom from God's demands, if you leave the faith... You lose the father's pleasure in a faithful son. In, in the corresponding section of this letter, which, which was read in the New Testament reading, I think that section on discipline and suffering is anticipating and helping the, the audience to deal with their ongoing suffering. And, and the author says, what father is there who does not discipline the son he loves? And, and look, at, look again at chapter 10, verse 38. My righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. This indicates that the righteous who live by faith please the soul of God. Let's pray. Father, for those here who are not believing, we pray that you would enlighten them. We pray that you would do the miracle and make it so that their eyes see Jesus in all his glory. And Lord, for those of us who are believing, we pray that you would help us to sow hope in what you've promised, in the great reward, in the better and abiding possession, that we count everything else as loss compared to knowing you. 
And Lord, we pray that this would enable us to endure. We pray that you'd give us wisdom. We pray that you would give us discernment and give us resolve. Resolve to trust you. Resolve to maintain our confidence in you, in Christ, in the church, in the scriptures, and in your ability to keep your word, to carry through on what you've promised for Christ's sake. Amen.